Welcome to the Men in Lead podcast. I really like your background, though. <laughs> Thanks. I'm literally, I'm literally just outside, so you'll hear, um, you'll hear some bird, um, birds, maybe. That is very relaxing. Like, where exactly are you now? I'm in Central America, Nicaragua. That's how do you like it there? Uh, I've been here four years, so I guess I like it. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. So you had like this that. company for 15 years, the largest in, uh, um, I think it was osteopathic company in Canada. Yeah. And then you yeah. just sold it and you moved. Yeah. I had a clinic in Canada, which is mainly for osteopaths. And osteopathy uh, about 15 years ago wasn't well known in most provinces in Canada. So actually, I was the first osteopath in the whole of Alberta. And Alberta is the size of France. So just one guy, well, I see me and my, my then wife. Anyway, we started this clinic and it grew from just us to uh, about 10, 15 people. And one day this uh, author was coming through as a researcher and he came through the town. And he said, hey, I'm actually researching osteopathy. And did you know you have the biggest clinic in Canada? And we said, no, we didn't. So, yes, it, it wasn't like, you know, a, a miniature hospital or anything, but it was for osteopathy, a big clinic. Anyway, when you're running staff of, um, I think at the end it was 15 because we had a, a natural movement gym attached to it as well. You end up spending most of the day in administration and then the clients I saw, I would be like, hey, you know, you should really look at your lifestyle and you know, change these things. And that's your path to health. But I wasn't practicing what I was preaching. And then the opportunity came to sell. And my wife and I were like, you know what, we just we just need to sell and stop this madness because we were actually uh, getting unhealthy ourselves. And so we sold and then moved to Nicaragua in Central America. Could you perhaps have what you know now implemented the healthy habits back then and still kept on being uh, like improved your health, like reversed that negative things? Yeah, I, I think so. So um, I'm from the UK originally, and I went to school for osteopathy in the UK and lived in London and had that whole London life with, you know, sort of drinking and partying and 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 work. But then when I left it, I didn't consciously try and become more healthy, but I moved to a part of Canada, Calgary, uh, which is in Alberta, that, you know, there's not really much to do. You know, if you, if you picture of Canada as a sort of huge open uh, wilderness, we lived in a part of that just outside Calgary. And after about two years, I sort of felt in my body that I was healthy and I hadn't realized I was unhealthy in, in, in London. So the lifestyle was good in Canada and we used to go to a spring and get our water in glass jugs from the spring and we would communicate directly with farmers and we would put in um, uh, money for, for cow shares and, and, and pig shares and things. So we, we took care of our health for sure. But it was running this business that was the, the detriment to us. It was things like getting up in the middle of winter when it's dark in my house, going into my garage, which was um, attached to the house, sitting in the car, not going outside, driving to work, going into the, uh, in, uh, the uh, what do they call it, the heated garage there, walking inside the building, working all day, going back to my car, driving back to my house, not once going outside. So the, the winters in Canada don't promote health. So maybe I could have changed things, but I think the environment there is like the summer is amazing and the winter is just tough. Would you have looked into some of those bright lights to kind of like mimic a daylight in a way, like now that you, if you could go back in time? 
Yeah. So, all right. So if I was to do the whole thing again and try and live as healthily as I could in Canada, then um, I probably would structure my day differently because that part of Calgary is actually pretty. So that part of Canada is pretty good with daylight. It's just, you know, short. It gets light at nine in the winter and dark at, um, at uh, three or three thirty. So I would have structured my day to go outside and be out, even if it's snowing, even if it's cold, and just have real natural light on my on my face. Could I have substituted the natural light with those bright lights? Perhaps. I don't know a huge amount about those, so I'd have to have researched that. Um, we did do, you know, the alarm clocks that that light up uh, slowly in the mornings, and they come to full lightness with a full spectrum lighting at the time you want to wake up. We did put those in to help with the circadian rhythm. Um, yeah, so I think there's hacks, I think, that we could do. But at the same time, the opportunity came to sell and the opportunity came to live in a country where that's not a problem anymore. So that's what I decided to do. All right. So this, this is really, I'm really glad you talked about, like, you're, you were still looking after yourself diet-wise. You know, you were doing the good water, the good food, but stuff are still not right. Would you say, like, what was the biggest contributors to you feeling unhealthy despite looking after your diet? Yeah, that's a great question. So stress, that's what it comes down to, you know, like, I don't think you can eat yourself out of a stressful lifestyle. I don't think you can eat yourself out of poor sleep. Um, and I don't think you can eat yourself out of, you know, no, no nature contact. So like, you know, it's, it's, it's not just if someone has their nutrition dialed in, that's great. But if there's other areas out of whack, then it's still going to affect the, um, their health. And so for me, it was, the, the rat race of commuting, um, managing a start like this big staff, having a uh, the clinic that was great, but the movement center actually struggled financially, then treating patients as well, trying to be, you know, be a, be a bit of everything to everybody and having two young kids and a, and a, and a wife. It was just, it was just too much. So it's a lot of stress. Were you doing anything specifically to mitigate the stress, like stress management in a way? Yeah, not really. Um, you know, I can make excuses for that, but your know, time is the big one. You know, I really like yoga um, to do sort of slow, mindful movements. But we had this, we had the gym and it was a natural movement gym following the principles of MoveNat with Owen LaCour. And so I built that into my day. But exercise can be seen as a stressor, an extra stressor. So it was like, yes, I moved, but it but I moved, you know, I wanted to push myself. So I added an extra stressor. And at that time I, I got into the Wim Hof breathing and I struggle with meditation. I'm sure lots of people do because of, um, you know, the monkey mind. But when I found the Wim Hof breathing, I was like, okay, there's, there's not much else your mind can do apart from breathe. And this was maybe, I did his original course years ago. So eight, eight years ago, and we had a, an email list of about 10,000 people. And I put it out there on the email list. I said, hey, does anyone want to do this with me? Uh, we'll have an accountability group and we'll go through the program together. I had three people contact me from that. And I was thinking if, if I put out an email now to that many people, I would have been inundated. So definitely an, an early adopter. But Wim Hof isn't necessarily a relaxation technique. You know, that causes a rise in, in adrenaline and, and cortisol as well. So I was adding these little stresses to my body and I did find Qigong, which is, um, you know, a, Jap a Chinese uh, movement based meditation because I like to move and 
be mindful at the same time. So Qigong was perhaps the one thing I did, but I wasn't a, a regular practitioner in it. Okay. We can come back to exercise and movement in just a bit. So sure. you also went and saw shamans in Canada. Is this where you did ayahuasca or what, what happened there? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So the ayahuasca was actually done down here, but the, the, the shamanic aspect has always intrigued me. So osteopathy, which I trained in, osteopathy was developed by a doctor in sort of the 1860s, 1870s in Missouri. And he trained with what they call the First Nations and Canada, we call them the First Nations. So the indigenous Indians. And there was a, a sort of a mixture of the Indian or the, the First Nation uh, healing practices sort of found their way into osteopathy. And when I researched the history of it, I became intrigued by that. And living in Alberta, we actually lived on an Indian reservation, strange enough. <clears throat> so our, <clears throat> excuse me, so our um, house was rented or the land was rented from the local tribe. And I had the opportunity through various connections to spend some time with them. And the first thing that, you know, the fun thing, the Western thing to do is to get your spirit animal. Have you, have you heard of that? Like you got the big bear behind you, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if your spirit animals are bear, but you know, that would seem fitting. I've just read this one book that fitted me with a sleep archetype of a bear. So it's kind of like you take a little bit in the morning to wake up and then you're very relaxed. So like a bear is yeah. very relaxed. And that's what I raised. And I just like, I like being a bear. It's calm. <laughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? And the idea is when I, when, when I chatted to the, these First Nations, they would say, well, you know, if your archetype is a, is a bear, for example, then in the winter, you're going to be slower and, and um, not as active. And so you, if that is your child, for example, and you notice that they fall asleep a lot and so on during the winter, well, that's fine because that's their archetype and you should study that. And in the summer, they, can, they might be labeled as ADHD, but they're not. They're just busy being, being the bear. Uh, so... You know, that's the, that's in summary, that's the kind of like or a very high level overview. That's the way they look at it. So we got into I got into the shamanic way of thinking, the way of looking, um, the way of connecting with nature to a certain degree. But then I managed to spend um, time with this group of Cree First Nations through Bruce Lipton. Now, Bruce Lipton, you may have heard of him. He's written a book called. Um, Oh, shoot. It's, uh, it's just uh, it's just got out of my mind. But it'll, oh, the biology of belief. There you go. And so Bruce Lipson is big on how our thoughts can affect our actual selves. And he linked up with this Cree chief and opened up the opportunity to go to what they call a sun dance. And through this sun dance, which is a, a 10 day long ceremony, I had some really fascinating insights into um, alternative medicine and how it can work. And with my clients, I would also see sometimes that they would get miraculously better from something that my sort of Western training would say is rubbish, you know, raindrop therapy or uh, Reiki, you know, and I learned pretty quickly to say, well, I don't know how these things work, but I also can't say that they don't work. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and I wanted to learn more. I wanted to travel and I wanted to speak to these people, you know, the self-made bone setters or the, 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 the shamans in Guatemala and say, well, what do you do and how do you do it? And that eventually led me to talking to a shaman here in Nicaragua and trying the ayahuasca, which if you haven't done it, it's, it's, it's something, something pretty special, I can tell you. 
Yeah, I don't know if I ever want to try something like that, but I've heard a lot of people say it was a quite revolutionary, I think it's a good yeah. word for it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, a lot of these things that you talk about with the shamans, it seems so, I've never heard of them. So you say it works like what? It would be the two to three things that you have found to work the best for most people that you've learned there. From the shamanic medicine. Yeah, okay. So, okay, this, this, is, this is kind of my uh, take, take home from it, is that everything can work. It's just how, how you apply it. So my philosophy through osteopathy is more physical. It's like a person has um, you know, bad lower, a lower back problem. Okay, well, I'm going to look at their foot, their knee, their ankle, and see how their body biomechanics work. Uh, a nutritionist may say, well, you know, your digestive system's off, so we're going to take out information in your guts. That can help your lower back. Then you may have a more um, spiritual type uh, helo, put their hands on like the Reiki and, and talk about energy. And a shaman, depending on which country you're in and, and, and so on, may say, well, look, it's, it's a little bit of your thought process. It's a little bit of the physical. It's a little bit of food. And they would have a ritual that would help you, so or a ceremony, and that can involve um, music, can, can involve fasting, and it can involve hands-on therapy. So all three seem to work. Uh, well, all three of those things. And so for me, what I realized is that if I see someone and they don't get better, then maybe I'm just concentrating too much on one area, just on the physical. And so when I see someone, I, I kind of stick to a bit of a routine. So there's the ceremony aspect of it. And then I do the physical and then I don't actually do the music as much or, or that kind of thing, but I will address the other areas in their lives. And I call that lifestyle medicine. So I go kind of wider than just the mechanical. So lifestyle medicine, can you elaborate more on that? What exactly does that entail? Yeah. Lifestyle medicine is, is a trend in regular medicine at the moment where the doctors are beginning to, well, a group of doctors in every single country are beginning to say, well, this prescription model that they're in, the short consultations, the, the, the drugs being the solution to most ails, isn't necessarily working. So instead of ignoring nutrition, they would perhaps address nutrition. And so they would address nutrition, exercise, stress management, relationships, sleep, and toxins. So alcohol and, and smoking being the obvious too. So when you have a doctor that actually thinks more holistically, they can do amazing things. You know, blood pressure can drop, diabetes can be managed all through those six areas. And I, I look at those areas and I sort of think, well, we can kind of clump them a little bit into the physical, which is the nutrition and the exercise. And then the, the intellectual, the mind, which is stress management and relationships. And then um, more into the spiritual as well, which is going to be, sorry, I mentioned relationships before, but the spiritual is relationships and sleep and then the toxins in there as well because i find if someone's relying on toxins perhaps there's a misalignment either with their, their spirit or with their mind yeah so i'm interested specifically in optimizing the lifestyle because we you know there's so many general guidelines on diet i don't necessarily want to dive into that at the moment so when it comes to lifestyle what are the top lifestyle changes that people can do that will have the best impact on their health yeah Okay, so at the moment, and you know, you can quote me on this now, but may change in the future. But if you're not sleeping, 
So remember we said you can't eat your way out of, uh, out of stress. So yeah. if sleep, if, if lack of sleep is a stressor, if you're not sleeping, then it doesn't matter how good your exercise and, and diet are. So I would say the top thing is sleep. And that has been historically one of the worst things that we, that we do as, you know, especially in North America, you know, it's like, who needs to sleep four hours? You know, you want to sleep four hours if you're a CEO and you want to work every day that, you know, that's out there or that's God's given you or whatever you want to say. So um, sleep is the big one for me. So that's number one. Do you have a number two, number three? Yeah, number two, I think exercise because there's so many studies, as you'd, as you'd know, that link strength to longevity. And I guess what, we're, what, I'm, what I'm getting at here is longevity and health, right? Yeah. So why would you sleep more? So you live longer and you don't get diseases. So, so exercise is in there and then nutrition. It, it, like, you know, you asked me to put them in order, but there, there's no order, really. They yeah. kind of link together, but exercise and nutrition. And then, you know, fascinatingly, <clears throat> recently, I was looking at that study out of Boston that's been going for 75 years. Um, I think it's called the Boston Aging Study, where they followed a group of 700 men from different socioeconomic backgrounds for 75 years. You, you familiar with this one? I have oh, no. heard about it. Yeah. Okay. It's fascinating. So there's actually a TED Talk on it. And the lead researcher at the moment, he starts the TED Talk and he says, you know, wouldn't it be great if rather than doing like a six month study or a year study, we could actually follow someone for 75 years, you know, and the audience is like, yeah, that'd be great. He says, but the trouble is with these, these studies is that the researcher dies or the funding gets cut. And very rarely do we get to, to a point where we can look at the data apart from now. And then he talks about his study. So what they did is they looked at a healthy eight year old now and they went back in time and said, well, what was that person doing when they were 40 and 30 and 20? And what can we extrapolate out of that? And it's quite kind of easy for us to think, well, let's, let's do some, some good nutrition. Let's do some, uh, some good exercise. And, and you, know, you know, we have short studies on this and we have, you know, the changes in the physiology. But we haven't measured that over 50 years or 75 years. So these guys have. Turns out. And when they were, what makes a healthy 80 year old is not their blood pressure when they're 40, not their uh, lipid panels when they're 40, turns out the quality of their primary relationship. So they're, they're, and these were men, unfortunately, they just didn't do it on women, but they basically their quality of their marriage led to them being healthier 80 year olds. So relationships is huge isn't there as well. That is interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that one, <laughs> but it makes sense. It makes sense because that could be a huge stressor. Like if it's not in a good place, if it's not good, exactly. It's going to go the other way. Right. And it's going to lead to an early, probably an early death or disease or whatever it is. Yeah. So let's go back to sleep. Do you have any top tips uh, to optimize sleep quality? Yes, I do. And sleep for me has been a challenge, especially in this country. So in Canada, it was actually pretty straightforward. It's quiet. There's no dogs barking. You know, we're in Central America here. The windows are open. There's roosters, all that kind of thing. So I think a dark room is key. Now, there are some more fringe studies that show that how light can actually affect your cortisol levels if your body's exposed to light during the night. Um, I have no reason to disbelieve those studies. It's just that they're not mainstream. So no light is good, especially blue light from phones, from devices, from alarm clocks, that kind of thing. Then earplugs can be great for blocking out sounds. Um, eye masks can be great as well. And cool, a, a cool room is important. And that's one thing we struggle with here. 
I don't like running AC. Um, just so happens in this part of Central America, it's very expensive. But also, I, I think it messes with the quality of the air in the room. And so keeping, keeping the room cool is difficult. I've actually invested in this uh, cover for the bed that pumps cold water through, through the bed. So you put it on. And then I've got another cover that goes on top of me. That's, it's a sheet that inflates and it has tiny holes in it and, it. and it lets the air come out of the holes. So I have this, this sort of cool air coming down on me and the cool air coming up and that keeps me cold. That's awesome. Yeah, I've, I've definitely felt, uh, felt for me is that also the sound is very important. So earplugs can be amazing. Like any small sound can uh, wake you out of your state, not necessarily like wide awake, but yeah. just enough to disrupt sleep quality. And then we use a fan. So the fan can like serve as two purposes. It keeps you cool. White noise, yeah. yeah, and white noise. Um, but so when the power goes out for some reason, you know, and then you have no fan and then you basically can't sleep because now you're so used to having this being cooled down and the white noise and whatnot. So a uh, sound earplugs is amazing. Do you have like a specific brand for like the earplugs and the um, eye masks or not really? Yeah. Uh, I don't know the brand names, but I use the silicone earplugs because you can mold them very easily. And what I found with the foam ones you know, they stick out slightly and then you, you roll on them and they cause noises in your ears. So I, don't, I use a silicone and make it real small. And then the eye masks, there's these ones, like if you, if you think of the eye mask that you see on the plane, the classic kind of one they give you on a, in the plane, they kind of pull in on your eyes. Whereas I found these eye masks that have these bulges on. So they actually bulge over your eye. So your eye, um, eyelashes don't touch them. So I just Google, um, you know, high quality uh, eye masks. And you get them with, they fit the nose and they come around your eyes. So those are the ones I look for. So when it comes to sleep quality, you mostly focus on lifestyle uh, or do you have like a pre-bed snack and maybe a supplement that you use? I don't do a pre-bed snack, but I do do magnesium in the evenings. Yeah, 200 milligrams, thereabouts. I just find that really helps me sleep. Um, I also use the blue light blocking uh, glasses if, I, if I'm going to be on my computer uh, beyond well I, I use them from about seven o'clock 7 p.m because here it gets dark so early it gets dark at 5 30 every day so i use those to help and that just helps me it it, it helps me uh feel like i'm in a routine and, and, and in in a sort of a ritual of going to sleep and there's some great research showing that that helps lower cortisol as well and and the melatonin increases with that how much do you focus on sunlight now Focus on sunlight. So my understanding of the, the evening is that the evening is actually set up in the morning. So if, if I have a client who's struggling to sleep, the first thing I ask them to do is readdress their morning routine. So if they can get up, maybe they drink coffee, whatever they do, but actually look at the light as, it's, as the sun is rising, look towards the east, get that morning sun in, then that helps reset their circadian rhythm so they're actually being more tired in the evening the cortisol levels drop the melatonin levels increase and they're primed for sleep so i focus on sunlight that if that's what you mean i focus it like that for sleep and then for general health i mean you can see i, I i'm pretty pretty light skin so i have a a love-hate relationship with the sun down here and i know i need it i just don't go in it when it's when it's the middle of the day i just go in the morning and the evenings yeah, like me, self, me, myself, and I, <laughs> in the past, have also <laughs> avoided sunlight a lot until I really uh, 
experienced how beneficial it is because you know a lot of people talk about it and you know a tan does look good so i want to work on my tan get my vitamin d levels up all of those kind of good stuff and then i noticed all of the benefits started accumulating during the summer that i've never really experienced before because i've always really been trying to avoid the sun because i i don't like the heat like my um my dad's side of the family is coming from holland which is obviously also very fair skinned people. So I think half of me is kind of like averse to the sunlight. But after getting an accumulated to the sun, um, food sensitivities went away. My energy is much better. Sleep was much better. Uh, I don't know. There was, there was so many benefits that I can't even recall right now. But sunlight's so important. That's why I was kind of like asking you if you, because you're now more in Central America, benefiting more from the sunlight. Yeah, no, I think so. And and I know you, you have the sunlight samurais as well. And um I think in Canada, you know, the contrast is going to be Canada, where in the summer we had, I don't know, 18 hours of sun or something, you know, in the summer. And then in the winter, it's sort of seven hours of sun and it never really got that high, even though Calgary uh, didn't have much cloud, which is fantastic. But I never really spent that much time in the sun. And so here I, I try and get as much sun as I can just without damaging my skin. And I also, you know, don't have any hair on my head. And uh, I have a couple of sun sun damaged areas, so I, I wear a hat. But I'm not definitely not against the sun, and and I do try and embrace it when I can. Yeah. All right. So let's switch over to exercise. When you help someone with movement in general, do you explain to them we're going to do exercise, or we're going to incorporate some kind of activity that's going to be fun for you, just to be more active? How do you approach exercise and movement? Right. I mean, the se- the second way is is going to be the way that I would like to do it. But it's not, it's not always that easy. So, well, I actually work with kids as well. So I, um, I run at the, the local school here. I do what we call parkour in inverted commas. So oh, yeah, it's only for that. like nine, yeah. 10 year olds. And we're not doing crazy parkour, but I, it's more like natural movement. So I'm getting them to learn how to jump and fall and roll, all that kind of stuff. So that, that movement to me is fun. It's part of a child's movement, um, you know, movement spectrum, uh, movement literacy. And, you know, kids should be getting moving like that anyway, but, but nowadays they don't as much. And I noticed that there's a bit of a contrast between uh, the expat kids here and the local kids. The local kids move really well and the expat kids don't move so well. And I think that's due to um, not walking as much, not, just not playing as much, not uh, surfing potentially. There's a lot of surfers here. Anyway, so I'm trying to correct that with my class, the, park, the you know, movement, natural movement parkour classes. But when I have a client in person, they will have a specific injury and I will have specific exercises for that injury. So whatever that is, if they've got a hip problem, I'll give them more kind of prescription type exercises. But then moving on from that, it's like once the injury is better, what can they do to, to exercise and make it fun and so on? And that really comes down to the individual. So if that individual is into, into yoga, that's great. If they're into hiking, it's great. I will potentially work with what they're already doing. If that individual doesn't want to do or doesn't do anything, then the, the classes, uh, back to us, like the classes we used to run at our, our clinic, the natural movement classes were fun. They were natural movement for adults. And the idea was that it wasn't, there wasn't sets and reps. In fact, we didn't even have any weights in that, in that gym. We had some sandbags, I think, and some medicine balls. But generally, it was what can they do to move and be functional uh, as, a, as a human being? And most people find that approach kind of fun, as opposed to lifting weights in the gym, which some people don't like. 
but then others love that, you know? So to me, it's, it's kind of individual, but if I had a choice, it would all be natural functional movements. What do you find is the biggest hiccups when you try to get someone to be more active? Where do they resist the most? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. I, I tell you where I make my mistake. Let's, let's go that way. I make my mistake when I say, okay, you know, this is what you need to do. And I prescribe like too much. And then they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they never do it. So that, that happens. I used to be a personal trainer and, and I didn't quite understand it at the time because people were paying me to exercise. You know, you pay for 10 sessions or whatever and, and, and they do what you tell them to do, but they never did anything outside those, those lessons or those classes. And so what I've realized now is that I say, well, when, when do you exercise? What do you do? And then people tell me and I say, well, okay, well, do you think you could add anything more there? Have you got more time? Do you want to spice that up a little bit, make it a little bit different? Put some, if they're walking, put some hills in. And I really try and be led by the client I'm working with to what they're already doing and what they are willing to do. Listening to their language to see whether or not they're ready for a change. So the biggest, the biggest hiccup for me was prescribing and not them not doing. And now I've kind of figured out that that was the wrong approach for me. And now it's, it's following and guiding as opposed to leading. Yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense for me. I like to do something that's more exciting and I always try to recommend something that's more exciting. So what I have found is that when you are active first thing in the morning, you're getting sunlight, like just after you woke up, you, that benefits you a lot to get your energy going, get your body temperature up, make your mood feel great, help with stress management, coming up with creative ideas, lots of benefits to being active in the morning, at least for me. That's what I try to recommend for people as well. So what a lot of people can do first thing in the morning is like either walk or cycle. But for me, I know walking is boring. Like, okay, I have to go right. walk for like 30 minutes. That's a boring. I would rather go and do rollerblading with the dog. So I'm, I'm always trying to recommend, let's do something fun. You know, let's try rollerblading, skateboarding, uh, cycling. Maybe you can do jump on the scooter. So I'm trying to think of ways that can be fun for people to do it. But then you have the general population that perhaps is not in any kind of state to be able to do such things. So how do you get someone like in the introductory level into something more fun because you obviously want to get to that point where it is fun where they can continue to do it because if walking is so damn boring <laughs> you know you have to get to something that's going to be fun yeah totally yeah i see what you're saying and and it, it's the same it's like that that would be my that's my what i try and do uh, as well but i also have kids they're a bit older now so i can get away with it but let's say when they were two and four and i say i say to a mother you know you really need to get up in the morning and go roll a baby they're like they'll look at you like what no, I can't, I can't leave the kids. That, that ain't happening. The only way they're going to have time to exercise is when their kids are in nursery or asleep. So you've got these, like, these individual challenges. And for me, I say, you know, again, it's led by the client. I'm like, you know, what are you into? Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I haven't got time to go to the gym. I don't want to have a gym membership. Okay, do you like dancing? Oh, I wish I could dance. Yeah, if only I could go out at night. I say, well, you know what? There's some really great videos, YouTube videos, that if you like 90s music, we can just do a dance session. And so I've got these resources that I will send, now 15-minute 90s dance revival. And the mom can just put that on. And they're going to jump around and get a good, a good workout from that. And then specifically, if I, if I find, you know, they might have a functional deficit, they might need some specific strength work on their legs or whatever i'll say okay as a warm-up you're going to do this and as a cool down you're going to do this and then build in some little components to it but yeah it really is self-led and and i would love everyone to do like you said to 
go out and you know get some sunlight and and have a lot of fun but that's not always possible so i just work with what the client can do yeah for sure for sure that's definitely kids especially young ones makes it quite difficult because you know that time partitioning can be difficult unless yeah. you know someone you can go walk with a baby maybe that's like an option but then you can't exactly be maybe you team up with another parent and then it's like okay can you do this and and here in San Juan, actually, there, there's a group of women, you're in their late 30s and 40s, who skateboard. And that's kind of cool. So they, there's a little place down by the bay. And for, I don't know why, or maybe maybe that happens in other cities as well, but I haven't seen it, that, that there's this sur- um, skateboarding revival and surfing as well. And so a lot of those women will, will either wait till the kids are at school or have some way of managing the children whilst they, do, they, they, they uh, go and do their passion. <laughs> That's cool. So let's switch gears for a little bit here. So what are the hidden causes of illness and injury? Because you do work with people that are, for example, have knee pain, hip pain. So what are some of those hidden causes there? Yeah, good question. So there's different ways of looking at this. But firstly, we'll, we'll go for the biomechanical way. And what that means is, let's say someone has knee pain and they go and see a physiotherapist. Generally, in the UK, where I'm, where I'm from, and in Canada, the physio- physiotherapist will look at their knee. They may, they may diagnose something, or maybe the doctors diagnose something. You can have like an irritation of the patella, and they will call that patellofemoral syndrome. And the focus will be on the knee. Maybe they'll be strengthening up some muscles. They'll diagnose a muscle imbalance and so on. That's fine. But, but the knee, essentially, in this case, is just two bones coming together. And at the bottom, the bottom of the bottom bone, the tibia, is the ankle and foot. And the way the ankle and foot are will, will twist or affect the movement of that bottom bone. And at the, the top bone in the knee joint is the femur. And then you follow that up and you go to the hip. And where the hip is will affect the knee. So now we can say, well, actually, the knee isn't just the knee. The knee is the hip, foot, and ankle. And so looking a little bit wider. Now, for some therapists, this is, this is old news. But for others, this is mind-blowing. And, you know, we call it a hidden cause because I see clients that have gone, you know, around the mill and, you know, even sometimes had surgery for knee problems. No one has adjusted their foot or looked at their subtalar joint that doesn't move properly, which we call that the switch that switches on the engine. If the bottom of the foot doesn't work, the whole chain going up, it doesn't work optimally and you end up with knee pain. So that would be a biomechanical hidden cause of, of let's say, knee pain. Then we can go the other way. We can go um, into the more the physiology and look at nutrition. Gut inflammation for back pain is a huge one. We can look at scars because once someone's had a surgery of any description, the fascia, which is this connective tissue sheath that covers the muscle and the organs inside the body, that can get uh, tightened and uh, restrict movement. So scars can affect the way the person moves. So that'd be a, like in inverted commas, a hidden injury, a hidden cause. Uh, for example, we had a guy in the clinic a few years ago who had, he was 80 years old and he had a sore shoulder. And when he took his top off, he had this huge appendix scar from when he was like seven or eight years old. And back, back then they would just literally cut the person right open. So we worked the scar and that released off his chest, which then released off his shoulder. So Treating a shoulder would have been potentially futile, and that's what other therapists had done, but no one had treated the scar. And then we can step back from that and look at um, their environment as well. What are they doing? Are they sitting at work? Are their relationships um, not so great? We look at toxins. 
We can go wider than just smoking and alcohol. We can look at things like uh, mold in the house. We can also look at things like Lyme disease. So there's so many different ways of assessing an injury. And when a person or, or an illness, when a person comes to me, I'm not limited to just sort of by being um, myopic on the place that's sore. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, so you talk about knee pain can come from the foot. How have you seen, or have you noticed that that can be caused by the kind of shoe that people wear? Because there's kind of like this movement now to barefoot shoes and people are worrying with this closed shoes that then causing weak feet and whatnot. Totally. Have you seen x-rays of people's feet, women's feet in particular in high heels? No. Where there's a company called Correct Toes, which uh, I've been working with Correct Toes for probably 10 years now. We were the, we were the first um, importers of Correct Toes in Canada. So Correct Toes is a toe spreader made by a podiatrist. And on their website, I believe, they've got these x-rays of a foot inside a, a high heel. And you can imagine a high heel's got a point on it, right? And you can see the way the, the big toe is turned inwards to make the bunion and the little toe is turned inwards to make what they call a tailor bunion on the outside. And it fits exactly to the shoe. Now you take the foot out and you'd expect the foot to return to the normal shape, but over time it doesn't. And you end up with these pointy toes and bunions, which then lead to instability of that person um, when it comes to running or balancing on that foot because their toe is not in, in the right place. So now you've got uh, an unstable foot, which is trying to be made stable by other muscles and joints of the knee and the hip. So they're going to be working extra hard just because of the footwear that that person used. So yeah, I've been wearing, um, they call them uh, minimal drop or low drop shoes. So the heel is the same height as the forefoot, which makes sense because that's how your foot is in, in walking around barefoot. And a, a shoes with a large enough toe box for your foot to go, um, to your toes to be in line with your heel. And one way, what I like to do with my clients, I say, look, if you're going to buy a pair of running shoes, if you can take the insole out of the shoe, put it on the ground, stand on it. If your feet spill out over side of the insole, then that is that shoe is going to be too small for you because the insole is basically the, the, the inside of the foot, inside of the shoe, the footprint. And if your feet spill out over it, you know, the shoe is going to be pushing your toes together. Do you talk to the parents because you, you coach these kids doing Parker? Do they do it yeah. barefoot or do I also use shoes? Do you, do you tell the parents about this? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, the school, I actually go to the school. So the school has a shoe policy, um, mainly because we're in the jungle in Nicaragua and there's scorpions and there's these vicious spikes that, that fall off the trees and things. So no, I don't. But my kids, you know, as soon as they're home, their shoes are off all the time. Okay, yeah, that's good because um, I've, my, like my sprint coach, that he also works with younger children every now and again. And he has seen some young children, like seven, where their movement patterns are dysfunctional. It's like, you're so young. How can your movement patterns be dysfunctional? Yeah. He said, because like the parents are immediately forcing shoes on the kids in America. It's like, something must be wrong there. So I think, like I was a kid, I've always been barefoot. I'm still always, always barefoot. I've only recently started switching to uh, barefoot shoes. So when I do Parker, um, initially it was a lot of impact on the big yeah. the barefoot shoes. But over time, because my sprint coach has me doing all kinds of amazing routines, strengthening like, the power center. I don't know if you're familiar with the power center. And that has really helped me to do all kinds of crazy jumps and really absorb the forces, like going to the right places and not in the feet. So it feels like amazing. You do get used to it. That's kind of like the point I'm trying to make. It yeah. doesn't feel that uncomfortable. 
All right. Okay. So switching to gut health, what specifically do you do to optimize gut health? For me personally, so you've got the gut, inside the gut is the microbiome, which are the bacteria that help you digest food. And so gut health to me is really about looking after the microbiome and the cells of that make up that gut wall. So anything that's going to feed your microbiome is going to be useful. So uh, probiotics, if you have if you have gut problems, is always a good way to start. And then the food that you eat and the way you chew it, I think, can really help as well. So you know, fiber is going to be great, but not all fiber for everybody. It can be different. Like I struggle personally with raw uh, some raw vegetables, and I just I just avoid raw cabbages and raw onions. It just doesn't work for me. Um, but also when it comes to healing, I really try and use the, um, the stocks, the chicken stocks, the fish stocks, the beef stocks, and make soups with those as the base as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I love stocks. Have you actually noticed the benef- a difference between like collagen supplement versus uh, like a beef, like, a, um, like an oxtail yeah. broth? Yeah, I've never taken a collagen supplement, so I don't, so I don't know. But I do remember talking to a... a, a I used to work for the Canadian Olympic team. And I remember chatting to one of the nutritionists there about um, stocks. And I was saying, well, you know, the stock's got the collagen in, the stock's got the, the glucosamine in. We should get, be getting the athletes to drink this to help their recovery. And she was like, no, no, if we want to do that, we should really measure what they're taking and we should use supplements, collagen, glucosamine, and so on. And I was like, you know, I understand what you're saying because then we can control exactly how much they have, which I get, but we're synthesizing this stuff out from a natural source, which has a ton of other stuff in that we, we don't even know the effects of it, but it's going to be beneficial. And it was very interesting. She was like very scientific and very much, no, it has to be measured, which I understand. But at the same time, I was more coming from the holistic point of view and saying, does it, why don't we just give them the stock? You know? So, so I don't know. I haven't personally tested the difference. Yeah. Honestly, what harm is it going to do? Let's just, maybe we can do both, you know, (laughs) maybe we do both. Exactly. So it was interesting. You said you treated the scar. So do you actually over time dissolve the scar or what does that entail? No, the scar, the scar never, never goes away. But if you imagine you've got pain receptors in the body, so they, they fire off with pressure or pinch or tickle. There's, there's established pain receptors. Sometimes those pain receptors can be hypersensitive around a scar and that hypersensitivity can create the, information to the brain which means that it fires down false information to muscular contractions so you can have an inhibited muscle around an area of the scar because the brain is saying well hang on something's pinching here or something's pushing we shouldn't be contracting those muscles so you desensitize the scar with the specific techniques we can use to desensitize it to make sure the brain is sending the correct um, information to those muscles and joints do you need to perform that frequently for the pain to go away can i resolve that no it's it's really interesting so there's one technique uh, i trained in called pdtr it stands for proprioceptive deep tendon release and that was put together by a, a a mexican shoulder surgeon who looked at things like ak which is the muscle testing that chiropractors developed um and another one called well anyway, lots of different lots of different um modalities and he, and he said well rather than dismissing them like most surgeons would and say they don't work he asked the question of how could they work? And then he realized that where they fall down, there were some big gaps in it and he filled those gaps with other courses and then he produced his own course. So I've had people who 
would have an inhibited, let's say, psoas, so they're not flexing as much as they can do, or they, if they're lying on their back, they really struggle lifting up their leg. I work on a scar on their belly just once, and then after like one treatment, and they've got up and they're like, wow, their hip function is completely different, and it, and it stays. That's cool. I don't know if you've heard about this, but vitamin D, you can actually inject vitamin D into or around the scar tissue, and that can actually help to restore the mitochondrial function and help to dissolve the scar tissue. So I think there's about one study on that, but I would be very interested to see like more repetitive studies to help dissolve scar tissue because there's a lot of people, even athletes, especially athletes that had like surgeries on the joints and whatnot that can help to resolve that scar tissue. So how frequently do you get athletes that had surgeries on the hips, knees, ankles, whatever, um, to help them out? Not so much here in Nicaragua, but back in Canada, I, I, like I said, I work with the Canadian Olympic team teams. So we worked with uh, speed skating, a little bit with downhill skiing, uh, biathlon. Um, and so I would work, yeah, we would work with those. But, you know, it's when you get to that level of competition, once an athlete is injured and has surgery, it's rare that they come back. Like we hear about, you know, some of them, the top ones come back, but a lot of them you just never hear about. And so, yeah, I would work with, I would work with the, the athletes and I would work on the scars, but sometimes their performance, you know, either mentally is not there, physically it's not there, or they were out for too long. Sometimes they just never make it back. So you probably had your own injuries because you did experiment with stem cells and plant medicines and whatnot. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, every time I injure something, it's, it's, it's uh, like I, like this, this week I was playing a, a game called spike ball, which is like a, a little game you play with a net and a ball and you hit it back and forth. We play it on the beach. I've played it for about a year. For some reason I fell backwards and I think I got a little whiplash in my neck and I could feel it turning up the next day. I couldn't move my neck. So we had that, you know, like the click, the classic facet lock, we call it where you, your neck is stiff. And so I was like, okay, well, how, how would I treat this? And so I made a video, it's actually not out yet, but I made a video on my YouTube of all the different ways of treating a neck from the bottom up. So if you move your head from the top down, as in your eyes lead the movement, that leads to a certain uh, motor sequence, which if you've got an injury in your neck, your, your body kind of knows you're going to do it because your eyes start the movement and your body goes, oh, uh, we don't like that. And it tightens up. But if you move your shoulders, you end up still getting neck rotation, but your body, it's a little trick. Your body doesn't kind of know you're doing it. And so you can actually pump out inflammation and relax muscles from the bottom up. Um, and release neck pain. So yeah, you, you name it, concussions, surgeries. Um, I had this thing called Dequavans tenosynovitis, which is like a really painful overuse injury on the wrist. Rehab that, I've got a video on that one as well. I rehab, I video a lot of my own rehab to help other people. So what was your experience with stem cells? Did it work? Was it helpful? Yeah, stem cells. There's a, there's a, a doctor here that does the stem cells and a few of my clients wanted to come down and, and try the stem cells. And and I thought, well, I better do it as well. So the reason I wanted to do it was because I had a knee surgery years and years ago. And I've got a uh, potentially I wanted to see if I can grow or fix any of that meniscus. And turns out one of the side effects of the stem cells is your hair growing back. And I was like, all right, well, I got to try this. <laughs> and so I did the stem cells. And sure enough, uh, I had these little clumps of hair growing back. But I, I thought in my mind, I thought the hair would grow back like yours. You know, it's like one day I wouldn't have hair, the next day I'd have these locks of hair. But it didn't grow back like that. It grew back in little clumps. Um, so 
that was to me that was pretty outstanding that you know you could inject uh, stem cells and these stem cells were not injected into my head they were injected into my veins so they go throughout the body and the idea is they find the area of injury and then they go to, they go to work there and so they went to work on my head and i think they went to work on my knee as well so it did help your knee as well quite significantly yeah i uh it's yeah, on full full flexion, it, it does have some clicks and clunks in it, but those have got less through the through the stem cells, and that was a couple of years ago now. So it's still it's still working, still still lasted. Sorry, would you say that was worth it to get the stem cells? For me, probably not, because uh, one, I wasn't, I didn't actually pay for it. I got it as part of like a referral for bringing some clients down here, but I didn't really have anything outstanding that I wanted to, to help with. However, some of the clients that do come here and they get the stem cells, it's, it's absolutely life-changing. I met, I met a guy just recently um, we were chatting and, and I said, well, you know, why are you here? He says, oh, I do the stem cells. And he told me that he actually had a, uh, he was selling everything he owned. He had le uh, leukemia, non-Hodgkin's leukemia for the second time. And the doctors told him to get his affairs in order. And he was having a fire sale of everything he owns. And a, a guy came into his backyard and said what are you doing so i'm selling everything i'm going to be dead in six months and he said oh you should come down to san juan del sur nicaragua meet this doctor and he did and this was two years ago and i met him and he was just like yeah i'm here for my checkup everything's gone i'm 100 healthy like cured that is quite amazing so yeah definitely worth it i guess yeah yeah so for me no for him yes <laughs> right so what is your favorite herbs for healing an injury. So I can think of, for example, Cesis is amazing for inflammation, maybe burdock can help with the regeneration of chondroitin or your cartilage. Um, what's your favorites for pain and inflammation and healing? Yeah, good question. I um, you know, this is not a huge area of mine actually. Uh, so I would, you know, I would default to more the homeopathics. So Arnica I would use for inflammation, but yeah, generally I don't take any herbal supplements like that mainly because here they're hard to come by. So we have traditional herbs that the, that the indigenous people here use. Um, so if I'm sick, I have a lady who would go into the garden, she'll pick things, but they're more just for sort of gut, calming down the gut and that kind of thing. But it's not, it's not an area, one, because I'm in a new country. I mean, yes, I've been here four years, but it's, it's difficult learning the names of the herbs, what they look like in different seasons and so on. I, I, would, defer, I would defer to other people for that. Right. So um, we've been going for a while now. Is there any questions, important questions I haven't been asking that you feel like we should insert into this conversation? No, not really. I think, I think we've had a great conversation about all sorts of aspects of lifestyle medicine. And uh, no, I think, I think you've done a, a great job and, and pulled out some really interesting information. Thank you. It seems that uh, it sounds to me that you, you focus a lot on rehabbing injuries on your YouTube. So I definitely recommend people go check that out. Um, why, where else can people find you and benefit the most from your information? Yeah, I have my website, which is edpaget.com. And on there, I actually run some online courses for back pain and scoliosis. So scoliosis is a, is a curvature of the spine, and I use specific exercises for that within a whole body approach. And I also run retreats down in Nicaragua for scoliosis and lifestyle medicine. And so those lifestyle medicine retreats, we cover all those areas of exercise, stress, uh, nutrition, relationships, and sleep and toxin toxins. And we do that over a five-day course. All right. So I will put all of the links in the description for everyone's for easy access. So you can get it there. 
And I really appreciate you coming on. I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, thank you guys for checking in and I will check you in the next one. Cheers, guys.